From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watts-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking about the Colored Conventions movement and the Associated Colored Conventions project with two of its principals, Gabrielle Foreman and Jim Casey, who are both faculty members here at Penn State. And they brought this project to Penn State and now has its institutional home here. And they'll tell us all about what the movement is, is all about in the interview, but Gabrielle and Jim and their colleagues have spent the past 10 years bringing these stories about African-American organizing in the 19th century to light. They've made a lot of progress, but as I think you'll hear too, there's still a lot of work to be done. This is an important project. It's won lots of awards, been supported by important foundations. It's been supported by the National Endowment of the Humanities, It's been going on for years. And the fact that Penn State has now brought it here and integrated into this larger Black digital research project, I think, means that the project will continue to grow, that its future is kind of assured, that it's going to be used for research, it's going to be used for teaching. It's a great development, I think. There's been more than 150 people who worked with them, alongside them, not to mention hundreds of volunteers who digitized papers. So it's an incredibly impressive project, but it is also in some ways drawing on the lessons of the conventions themselves, which is to bring people together to produce something that is helpful for a larger community. And in this way, right, about just bringing knowledge and bringing to light these conventions, which Before I knew Gabrielle, I didn't know about them either. And so just having them here and and seeing the documents, the patterns that arise, the differences across the country that show up are just really illustrative of the contribution that these conventions made and make to American democracy. I didn't know about this either. And I did know something about that period, though. And it's had me thinking about it. And I thought I might mention it, that uh, back when I was studying Congress in uh, graduate school, there was a uh, classic book that we all read called The Washington Community, 1800 to 1828. What made me think of that book is that it was all based on studying empirically And anecdotally, the experiences of members of the early Washington community, so members of the administration, members of Congress, others, Supreme Court justices, and how they lived, and in particular, how they lived in boarding houses and how these boarding houses kind of helped to create early politics that uh, in the absence of strong political parties, they kind of took on the form of parties or at least early caucuses within parties that uh, separation of powers, which at that time was not really firmly established in terms of buildings or even processes was respected in terms of who people lived with and who they lived apart from and things of that nature. Now, of course, this project is on the one hand doing something similar It even has a chapter on boarding houses and talks about how people ate. And it it talks most importantly about how black politics really were structured in this period outside of the South, in this period, by these conventions and by mobility and by residential patterns and all of that. But 
in my world anyway, it was a totally untold story. Just going back to the Washington community and in this book, right, and then in, in the connection with the color conventions is it makes you kind of think about where democracy happens. Yeah. You know, we, you know, have these rituals of Congress and the State of the Union and inaugurations and these very formal events, but it also happens when people travel, when people interact with their fellow citizens about, you know, their experiences. It happens in this case, right, in boarding houses. If you are bringing hundreds of people from across the state or across the region, where do people show up? Where do they live? Where do they commune? Where do these discussions begin? And it's not just kind of the, you know, form of the formality of meetings, but also just everyday conversations. There are going to be kids around. How do we pass on our values? We see that Gabrielle and Jim explained that the conventions lasted from 1830 up to the early 1900s. They do a really great job in both the book and in the documents show that as well. It makes us ask ourselves the harder question about what racial progress in this country looks like and how to measure it. If some of the problems that we're seeing now or the issues that were being addressed in the colored conventions also arises, then we have to start asking ourselves more nuanced questions and thinking a little bit more critically about what we mean when we say that we have racial progress in this country. And I think we'll hear in the interview, actually, that many of the issues they were talking about are still mm -hmm. being talked about, especially within the Black community and within Black politics. Yes, indeed. Gabrielle and Jim do draw those parallels. Before we go to the interview, I just want to mention that we did record this interview before the verdict in the Chauvin trial came out. So if you hear them talking about the trial and waiting for the verdict, we did record this before that happened. So with all that said, let's go to the interview with Gabrielle Foreman and Jim Casey. Gabrielle and Jim, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's so good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. So um, excited to talk with you all about your new book, The Colored Conventions Movement. But you know, I think this concept of colored conventions might be a new one to, to many of our listeners. And I, I want to talk with you about some of the reasons why that might be. But before we get there, I think it would be good to sort of set the table a little bit. So if you wouldn't mind, can you give us the 10,000 foot overview of what the colored conventions movement was? The colored conventions were a movement of conventions held by free and formerly enslaved African-Americans across the 19th century, starting in 1830, continuing all the way just until the very sort of eve of the founding of the Niagara Movement and then the NAACP. And the conventions, when we began learning about them, were relatively small, were oftentimes seen as a subset of the anti-slavery movement that were largely sort of clustered in the North before the Civil War. But in the work that we've done over the last nine years, I think now, we've worked with many, many partners and collaborators to start to piece together a history that tells us that there were at least 10,000 or so people, black men and women, who attended these conventions across at least 35 different states. And they would, at these conventions, debate all manner of topics, not just the overthrow of slavery in the early decades, but things like labor, temperance, education, voting rights, freedom from state violence. 
And at these conventions, what we see more often than not are folks gathering and building communities. And so for us, a major part of the conventions is both what happens on the podium, what happens where we put microphones today, but also in the spaces surrounding the conventions. I think one of the things that's really important to remember about the convention movement is that it involved almost all of the important and well-known names of activists throughout the entire 19th century. The most important ministers, the most important writers, the most important editors, the people who broke through glass ceilings to become the first editors, the first professors in white institutions, the first professors in black institutions. We're talking about the finest orators, the people who were usually thought of as embedded in movements where they are one of the only African-Americans. What this movement shows us in these multi-day meetings across the growing United States and also Canada is the networks of African-American people influencing each other, mentoring each other throughout generations so that you see families that are giving birth to people who then join the National Association of Colored Women, the Niagara Movement, and beyond. And of course, the NAACP. The color convention movement, although it is little known by so many people who are not scholars of a particular small area, right, in the 19th century, was really the foundation for the NAACP. It's the prequel to movements against Jim Crow and to the Black Lives Matter today. One of the things that you talk about in your book, and Jim, I think you mentioned this briefly as well, is that the color conventions movement kind of gets wrapped up in the narrative of the Underground Railroad and, you know, some of these other things. Can you talk more about that and perhaps anything you've gleaned about why it's only been within the past decade that this has become something that that scholars have found and started to learn more about? Sure. That's a great question that we could both probably answer together. The First thing that we should qualify is that we've collected records of, we think, most of the conventions over the past 10 years, and that process has been hugely generative as we just gather more documents. And that's a place where really the technology involved has been crucial just to be able to access these records. We found different records, articles, letters, all kinds of testaments about the conventions in something like 110 different libraries and repositories. Probably somebody before the advent of the internet could have gotten a Winnebago and spent 10 years going around to see all of these things, but that might not have been super practical for a lot of people. And so a lot of the work that we've done is really fueling the need for access to these materials that have been scattered across so many different places. The other thing I wanted to say is that the convention movement predates the antebellum abolitionist movement, that the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, the New England Anti-Slavery Society, and the American Anti-Slavery Society, all are established after the inaugural convention meetings in Philadelphia that are started at Mother Bethel AME Church, the most important and long-standing independent Black church of that time. And it starts again, the convention movement is inaugurated before the antebellum convention movement. We often think about the ways in which Black abolitionists, as we call them, were influenced by anti-slavery 
And we need to refigure this to think about the ways in which anti-slavery, both the press and the activism itself, are influenced and how constrained and narrow they look when compared to a movement that is advocating for full human rights and dignity, for full citizenship rights, for all of the democratic rights that should be imbued and endowed to full citizens and which aren't. The anti-slavery movement does not advance that fully. The convention movement does in labor, in educational access and rights, in voting rights, and also in freedom from state-sanctioned violence. The folks who were organizing these conventions, it, it seems they had this model to go off of that was previously orchestrated by white men and, you know, still was thinking about the constitutional conventions and other things that were happening at that time. And I'm just wondering how much was there a conscious decision to follow in that precedent that was already there as far as how these things should run and be organized and be talked about after the fact and kind of cataloged? Or how much was it folks saying, no, we see this way it's been done before, but we're going to do something different? We talk about the ways in which there's a parallel politics that is occurring at the same time as African-Americans are disenfranchised from the political sphere until the postbellum period, until after the Civil War, where you have the election of highly qualified people with a great deal of experience who are coming from the convention movement alongside formerly enslaved people moving into state legislatures. One of the things that is particularly interesting about the convention movement is that it sometimes times its meetings to coincide with the legislative meetings of the state legislatures. And they do that so that their addresses to the citizens of the state in which they are held, which is a convention of the conventions, these addresses to the Black citizens and these addresses to the state citizens, can be heard and are resonant at the very same time that the officials of the state are creating law and policy. The other really important thing to understand about the conventions, too, is that democracy was not an idle question for them. Many of the conventions across the entire century would begin with a call where a group of people would put out a document and say, here are some of the topics that we see as being pressing issues for our community. We think it would be better if we came together and talked in collective spaces. And people were not sort of monolithic in their thinking. People were not always in agreement. And many of the debates about what topics should be talked about, where they should talk about them, how they should talk about them, would depend on which communities were willing to be represented in that kind of shadow politics. And we see this across the entire century, where we even see sometimes Black communities say, we'd prefer not to be involved. We're working on local issues and we want to be strategic about our relationships to formal instruments of government. So it's not a a sort of one size fits all. And I think that some of the careful thinking that goes into that gives us many of these kind of small lessons in lowercase d democracy here. How did people organizing and going to the conventions, I mean, how did they think about citizenship? democracy, some of these big terms. Again, I think that it's often framed in what we know of popular history and things as just about no longer being enslaved and that struggle. But as you've said, it's about so much more. It's about labor. It's about education. And and so how were folks thinking about some of these higher level concepts? 
Stacey Abrams organizes like a direct descendant of the leaders of the Georgia Colored Conventions. In the Convention for Equal Rights and the Educational Association of Georgia just after the war, they resolved that in regard to the franchise, we will never cease to protest against all partial legislation based on color or race or other adventitious distinctions. They knew to think through issues of class, to think through partial legislation that rolled back and blocked their full rights and these full rights that other people enjoyed. And I think they would have supported the For the People Act, which regularizes and expands voter registration and also prohibits voter intimidation. They wanted to modernize voting in their own era. They wanted accountability. They actually protested long lines. They protested the fact that African-Americans were voted for and then challenged over and over again before they were seated in state legislatures and indeed in national legislatures. We take the case of the first African-American senator to be elected, Maynard, just Senator Maynard, who was never seated. We think about John Mercer Langston, who went to more conventions with his brother, Charles Langston, than probably any other sibling group and as many probably as Frederick Douglass himself, who went from 40 for four decades of convention organizing. And Charles Langston, John Mercer Langston's brother, was the grandfather of Langston News. So you see these through lines from political organizing to cultural production, all in advocacy for full Black citizenship rights and Black people to be recognized as full people, culturally, right, institutionally, educationally as well. And these methods of limiting voter turnout and communicating that Black people and other targeted groups are not citizens whose access to democracy is valued, again, was protested again and again in conventions. It is amazing how modern the conventions actually seem in the issues that they bring up and in the heterogeneity of thought and strategizing, but the uniformity of belief that Black Lives Matter then as now. Yeah, and I I mean, I guess it's in some ways deeply, I don't know, depressing, upsetting, disturbing that here we are more than a century later still having some of these same conversations. Right now, so many of us are experiencing the fact that Black mobility is a space that can be challenged, surveilled, and transformed into a deadly encounter at almost any time. And this is precisely what Black people were experiencing in the 19th century. When you think about Dante Wright, or you think about a army officer who is held at gunpoint, handcuffed and doused with pepper spray, all during a traffic stop that shouldn't have happened at all, then we can see the ways in which Black mobility, the right to be in public spaces, right, can be challenged by individual whites in almost any moment and then enforced by the state when they call the police. And it's just been several years of public instances of this over and over and over again that allow us to see the parallels between the moments when Frederick Douglass and Abner and Sidna Francis go down to protest the fact that they have not been able to have full access to transportation 
for example, on their ways to national conventions, right? And that this gets written into the record. We see people like Henry McNeil Turner testifying in front of Congress about the fact that people have to travel under the cover of night to avoid state violence. More and more now in these days, every Black mother and father are having conversations with their children about the fact that surveillance and violence is ever-present and you always need to be on your guard against it. Americans today tend to talk about individualism. We've certainly seen this during COVID about my rights, my freedoms types of discussions, but the colored conventions as you've described them and as you write about seem to be more focused on more group-based, more focused on community-based politics, policy, democracy. What can we take from that as we continue to navigate, again, some of these same tensions today about individualism versus communities and these types of things? This is a great question that occupied many of the conversations at the conventions themselves. Many of them, when they were trying to organize and build a coalition to hold a state, regional, or national convention, would get questions back from local Black communities to say, well, why am I going to spend all of the effort to travel to Chicago or Rochester or Raleigh? And they were not always easy answers, but one of the most common ones is one that I think shows up in various forms in our newspapers today, which was that it was really important not just for people to agitate locally, but for a specific and intentional Black activism to be able to reach across many of the different communities, knowing that many of the questions could be solved locally, but some of them required a stronger national voice. African-Americans in the 19th century, through the convention movement, really do constitute a different form of democratic ideology. Thinking through what it means to advance collective rights collectively, to write collectively, we think, and many people have posited, that the slave narrative is the foundation of the African-American literary tradition. What does it mean to think about the writing that happens in the conventions, which is group writing? It's as close to a Google Doc as you get. Literally, you have people in a committee of the address, that's what they're called, getting together to write collectively. And then the group calls for edits and they need to go back to the committee and produce something that is voted on by the collective and then published in the name of the collective. We think of one of the great political treatises of the time, Henry Highland Garnett's Address to the Slaves, as Henry Highland Garnett's address. But it's not. It comes out of the 43 convention where it's voted down. He brings it up rather than publishing it himself at the 47 convention, four years later, so that he can get the collective sanction and vote of the group of people who are at a national convention and then publish it under their name as a collective document. What we see here is an alternative genesis of Black writing and of Black advocacy for citizenship. That, that actually leads me to another question I had, which was just how were delegates chosen and if there are any kind of commonalities to who they were, if it differed from community to community. I think you said it was mostly men from what we can tell, but were they young, old, or are there any other kind of characteristics or trends that we can draw about who these delegates were? Some of the most recognizable names of the convention movement start when they are teenagers and when they're in their 20s. 
and you see them as budding activists influenced by the people that they're meeting with, some of whom are from previous generations. Bishop Richard Allen, who is one of the most important names in African-American religious history, is in the last year of his life when he hosts the first Black convention in the 19th century. But by the 1840s, you see the next generation of leaders, Frederick Douglass, Henry Heinlein Garnett, John Mercer Langston, coming out in their late teens and their early 20s. But they're also speaking to reverends who are 20 years their senior. And then 40 years later, sometimes 50 years later, they are the seniors as people from the South after the Civil War begin to come out in huge numbers and the convention movement exponentially expands, both in the numbers of delegates and in the numbers of conventions that are held. So conventions are cross-generational and they are also geographically diverse as well. And this seems to be extraordinarily important to me. The other thing that is critical is that they are cross-class. When they meet in New Orleans, for example, one of the Black newspapers publishes the fact that mechanics are sitting next to educators, the illiterate are sitting next to those who have practiced the political conventions of movement building. And there's a, a gorgeous quote about the ways that the just enslaved who are starting universities like Talladega University, one of the important HBCUs, are months from being enslaved when they go to the conventions which launch and initiate the beginning of some of these institutions, both institutions of higher education and newspapers. Black newspapers emerge from the conventions and are spoken about in the conventions over and over again and in various different states from California to upstate New York. Jim, I know we talked earlier about the technological challenges for why we don't know more about the conventions and why we have not been able to look at them comprehensively. But are there other factors that you think it's important to touch on there, culture or other you know, politics, other reasons why this history might have been prevented from getting out there in a, in a broader way? One of the questions that we've heard so often when we share this work with people is a very startling why in the world didn't I know about any of this in any of the history classes that I ever took? And there are, of course, lots of reasons. Partly it's the archives and documents and so forth. But it's also because we don't have a lot of useful frameworks just yet, I think, for understanding Black activism as more than just pointing to singular figures in history. And thinking about people like Frederick Douglass or John Mercer Langston or Amanda and Shad Carey, becomes all the richer when we can think about them as being embedded in these communities. And these communities are so important because they're not just sort of subsets of larger movements. They're not just sort of bystanders passively waiting for the often sort of made heroic white men and women of the same eras to figure things out and to say their pieces. And there's a really important distinction there between Black activism and the larger movements that they sometimes get collapsed in. So many Americans are romanced by the seductive narrative of interracial collaborations with Black people being the junior partner in their own freedom struggles. 
And the abolitionist movement and the anti-slavery movement produces lots of white heroes and a religious organization, the Quakers, who are legitimately heroic. They're also legitimately partial in their commitment to Black freedom, to Black labor, to Black social integration, to full Black political rights. But it is a wonderful story to tell and a neoliberal story to tell that allows the country to think about Black people as being indebted to whites for their own freedom or to a subsection of whites for their own freedom and not full adults. There's a wonderful line by June Jordan that says, white people don't always like Black people who are fully adult. They like to sponsor, right, Black folks they can infantilize. But they are not particularly enamored of empowered Black adults who might challenge them. And this is a movement corollary to June Jordan's admonition that not only is this an individual admonition, but a collective one, and that the country itself is not enamored of people who might challenge their concepts of democracy and point out how partial and inadequate those protections have always been. And it helps us to see that the racial justice movements that are rightfully gaining more and more momentum in our pressing moment today are not recent endeavors. And in fact, don't just begin in the 20th century, but that black people in the United States and beyond have always been agitating, have always been pressing for their claims for many of the principles that this country was not yet maybe ready to redeem, except in places where the conventions could model and show the kind of democratic practice that went so far beyond where the country was at in those times. And in that push, if we were to think about how to translate a convention from the 19th century to today, I think it's worth us looking for the spaces where those same ideas continue to spread. A convention was not just what people said aloud. A convention was the space that people created to have those conversations. And so anywhere we see that people are making those conversations in Black communities to talk about not just being defensive about the incursions of state violence and the erasure of rights, but also in the positive development, in the funding of schools, in the supporting of different kinds of institutions. And so if we see those conversations happen at a kitchen table or in a classroom or in a church or a classroom hallway after a meeting, then I think we could probably identify some of the similar impulses that drove the conventions as being fully alive and expanding today. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for your work. We will link to both the Colored Conventions Movement book and the Colored Conventions Project websites in the show notes so listeners can go check out all of the resources there. And Gabrielle and Jim, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Again, I'm just thrilled that we got to have Jim and Gabrielle in conversation. And thank you, Jenna, for a great interview, as always. One of the things that stands out to me, and I think that they really do a great job of pinpointing, is what happens when we focus on the kind of big man history, the the one guy. We can all talk about Lincoln, Jefferson, Madison, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr. But none of those people, none of those men did that work alone. 
And so one of the things I think is just so important is how a traditional telling of history bends towards individualism rather than community, when in fact it takes groups of people to come together to produce democracy. And we see that modeled in the colored conventions. And I just really thought that it's an important lesson to keep at the top of mind about what it takes to ensure that rights are advanced for whole groups of people. Mm This is true of Rosa Parks as well, isn't it? Yeah. She was part of a larger organization, but that's not how most people, I think, understand the story of Rosa Parks, which is not intended to take away from her personal bravery, but it wasn't just an individual acting alone. Your point has me thinking too, so when you move away from the sort of hagiography and you're moving towards a focus on systems, right, and processes and communities, And that has me thinking somewhat, too, of how we often treat some of these issues these days with police and the rogue police officer. And, you know, I was really struck on a couple of different levels by the testimony of the police chief, who was very much the model of new policing and who had also, I thought, you never see police testify against other police. So it was really quite remarkable to see it, but it also reinforced the idea this guy was just bad and this isn't supposed to happen in our police forces. And, and that distracts attention away from the systemic issues that we know exist. One of the things that we tend to think about in kind of a longer Black freedom struggle is abolition. And again, in our normal, regular, everyday telling of history, It was that we needed to get rid of slavery and then things would be fine. Or that was kind of a major, it was a major, (laughs) it was a major win to abolish slavery. But the folks at the color conventions weren't all enslaved people. They also cared about voting, temperance, access to education, labor rights, so on and so forth. The thing that makes me think about the connection is that now it seems like the big boogeyman is policing. But policing is also a system that is connected to a wider set of inequalities that the current Black freedom struggle is concerned about. And that also includes still voting, access to education and labor movements, best illustrated by the struggle in Alabama with Amazon. So I think what we see here, again, is that we have these kind of systematic inequalities that exist that have been highlighted. And the same can be said for what the color conventions cared about and what they were trying to do to enhance democracy for everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It has me thinking of, I don't know, work by Theta Scotchpole, by Lara Putnam, who was on our show one time. Uh, I think maybe Rebecca Kreitzer is doing some of this in North Carolina, looking at these women's groups or small groups that have formed in reaction to... Trump period or with uh, Theta Scotchpole with the Tea Party earlier on and how these organized groups outside of really outside of formal political power, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of formed more in the civic space, Mm -hmm. then become the basis of politics, of organization, of movements. And uh, yeah, so that's a part of this story that's just not told at all, that there was this whole experience 
that was going on for quite a long time across a lot of people and being mm-hmm. documented and passed on that could well have contributed to organization among African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think knowing this history makes things make more sense. So, yeah. for example, when I say our regular way of thinking about history, I'm just thinking about the way I was taught history in my public school history lessons. But it helped to connect dots about how Black folks were completely capable of helping to run the country after the mm. Civil War, right? So we we know that there are hundreds of Black political representatives who get voted in, that they had been practicing democracy this whole time, right? That it's not like they just were kind of mimicking what their white counterparts were doing, but were practiced at deliberating, at etching out the meaning of citizenship, of group decision-making, of writing collectively, of coming to some consensus, or at least supermajorities about how they wanted to move forward, and how they were completely qualified to do this work. They had tons of experience. I mean, the one thing it had me thinking of, but I don't know if it's where it, it's the implications of cutting off Reconstruction and yeah. eliminating from office all these Black people that had moved into elective office and just ending that through Jim Crow, right? And moving them to the back. And then forcing them into a sort of parallel politics of the kind described here, because cut off from formal political power, there's a lot of lost knowledge, but there's also a lot of knowledge there that then goes into this sort of parallel place of organizing, of trying to push for your demands outside of formal avenues of political power. I mean, in some ways, I think parallel politics are... (laughs) I'm not trying to like give an upside, a, a silver lining story, but I do think that there's something to having parallel politics as a check mm-hmm. on air quotes, mainstream democracy. And one example that I think highlights this is that there's a document on the website, the Color Conventions website. So you can look, you can search by a keyword or a topic but you can also search by state and you can search by year. So I searched by state. I went to see what's for Pennsylvania. And there is a color convention in the 1840s. And they come together because between 1791 and 1838, Black men had the right to vote in Pennsylvania. And then there was a new constitution that explicitly excluded Black folks from voting. You know, so a couple of things here. One is that we see that progress is not linear, right? So that folks had the right to vote and then they didn't. And then they were fighting to regain that right, which they didn't get until 1870. But in this document, what they're doing is they're imploring Pennsylvanians to remember their own history as the seedbed of American democracy. And so in this way, this kind of parallel politics is a check a reminder of what America could be, what it said it wanted to be, and then to try to push it toward that goal. Wow. Well, such an interesting project. We have so much we're going to learn from this. Very exciting. So right now it's mostly in the hands of uh, 
I guess, historians and people in African-American studies. And uh, there's some information in there for political scientists, too, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be really amazing to get, for example, some network people on oh, this wow. project yeah. to think about, right? I mean, Gabrielle and Jim make clear how mm-hmm. many of the Langston Hughes's dad and W.E. Du Bois's grandfather, I mean, all of these people took part over this kind of 70-year period. And what would a network analysis of the yeah, people yeah. who were taking part, what would that look like, for example? And uh, I look forward to meeting Gabrielle and Jim in person someday since uh, actually since they've been here and been out of the house. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, thank you, Gabrielle and Jim and uh, Jenna. Terrific interview. Really interesting. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watt-Smith for Democracy Works. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kubler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.